worst supply chain. Of course, I'm talking about the supply chain supply chain. Welcome, everyone. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. I want to say those words one more time. Supply chain. My guest today is Jake Barr, CEO of Blue World Supply Chain Consulting, LLC. Jake is the former global director of supply network operations for Procter & Gamble. He spent 33 years with that little mom-and-pop operation and now provides consulting support to Fortune 500 companies. We're going to be talking about the supply chain talent gap, a critical issue for every company trying to manage global operations today. Jake has some very specific recommendations about what you should be doing right now to retain existing talent and attract new individuals with the right skill sets. So let's get right to my conversation with Jake Barr. Jake Barr, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for being with us. This is a crucial issue, maybe the issue right now in supply chain. Describe the problem as you see it of the supply chain talent gap. Yeah, Bob, the, actually the issue has been uh, emerging over a series of years. It's just reached a, what I call a tipping point brought on by call it a perfect storm of things that have collided. So you have obviously a massive restructuring going on due to the macroeconomic scheme across many of the industry verticals that has restructured organization designs. You have a graying of the population in most of the developed markets around the world, which has uh, led to an increasingly short fall of talent in the mid-levels of most organizations around the world. You have a changing of the business models, the reaction times, and the need to get your products to market is more urgent than it's ever been. You've got a shrinking of the time to market of when you can get your payout on investments back into your bank, if you want to call it that. But when you look at that, uh, that's also been met with a unfortunate gap in the amount of talent coming in the front end of the pipeline. So you have a drain off the top end. You have a restructure where you've lost a lot of trained resources. And then you've got a pipe on the front end that unfortunately is not able to keep up with the demand of what these new business models really require in order to be successful. So I I call it the perfect storm, but reality is it's been a storm that's been brewing for some time, and it's just reached the point where it's uh, become a, a massive issue. And as a result, I believe you said we have a six-to-one ratio of jobs going begging for every graduate who comes into the uh, working world, correct? It is. Uh, in fact, in some of the industry vertical schools, it can be as high as eight-to-one. Um, it's creating uh, a bidding war. Great for young talent that's coming out of school, but unfortunately, um, a big gap in those that are needing to fill very critical vacancies. And unfortunately, most of the vacancies are in spots that are costing companies uh, significant sums of money because the vacancies that are remaining unfilled are in very technically 
highly competent roles that aren't just uh, something you can hire off the street and fill you know, on a moment's notice. It seems like it hasn't been that long since there were actually anybody coming out of college university programs gearing themselves toward anything like a supply chain career. A lot of the veterans in the business, and I remember when I came into this business, people sort of fell, in, fell into it from other disciplines. They came from marketing, they came from operations, and they were sort of turned into so-called logistics or supply chain people in the course of doing their job in the, in, at the, in the organization. You're absolutely correct, Bob. Unfortunately, the discipline, if you you know, we can call it that today, has emerged in a ferocious way over the last decade. You get a combination of the economic factors and really companies have to deal with a, um, a draining of a pipeline of new products and introductions and needing each and every one that they actually do bring out to be highly successful to continue to provide the fuel to grow their businesses. And that's just taking a different level of talent than it did before. It's much more technical skills than it was before. It's much more um, uh, mind-draining skills. So if you want to think about it in a context of it takes complex problem-solving to be a good, successful supply chain leader these days because of the sheer complexity of the networks and the number of nodes and the number of partners Many companies can have upwards of 10,000 suppliers, especially if they're of any significant size, and um, not doing all the work inside. So because of the economic situation, they've taken work either offshore or off to contract manufacturers and managing things and assets and processes that you do not physically own or can manage on a day-to-day basis it just adds to the complexity. Yeah. And we have, we have people now, or we need people who have both analytical skills as well as people skills, and those two things don't often come together in a single individual or not as frequently as we'd like, right? Absolutely. In fact, you're, you're talking about really business leaders um, and advisors in today's context of supply chain leaders. These are no longer individuals that potentially just had great shop floor skills and might have been able to grow up through the environment of just making the widget or providing the service that uh, a firm had available. Now they have to be, have financial skills, be very good at estimating investments and rate of returns on uh, the assets. To the way the network is going to be able to operate uh, successfully, they have to be able to talk to chief executive officers and provide them guidance on when it makes sense to actually lean into an investment in an emerging growth market versus uh, restructure perhaps in the, the uh, developed markets. So it's a, a new combination of skills, and it's putting even more stress. So let's talk about what companies should be doing. You have a very specific set of steps that you think they ought to be uh, undertaking right now. And let's start with the first one. I think you talked about the importance of cross-functional development. Could you explain that? I do, Bob. I call them five and five because I think there's just five basic points that if folks will uh, undertake and begin thinking about and, and executing across minimum of a five-month horizon, they can actually make huge progress. The engagement of a cross-functional development is simply saying take the existing employees you have or even the new hires that you're bringing in the door and immediately implement, even if it's only in a basic form, a cross-functional movement. You're taking someone out of the engineering team and moving them over onto the shop floor. You're taking someone out of program management and moving them out 
into logistics. You're taking someone from purchasing and putting them over on a development team. Uh, by default, you are having them see more of a business model. You're preparing them for the challenges that lie ahead, and you're getting them, in many ways, um, not only better prepared from a skill standpoint, but you're forcing them out of their comfort zone on what skills they may have brought to the table to begin with. Yeah, I was going to say you're probably terrifying them every single time you do it. Actually, you'll be surprised, Bob. I think uh, most of the studies I've seen from the reputable HR firms out there will talk to you about the fact that the, the workers today, you know, those in the workforce that are looking to be constantly challenged, so it's not your father's or grandfather's kind of career path development. And, and this actually feeds into a desire they have to actually do more things. So it'll actually ignite them versus dissatisfy them. Yeah. Okay. Step two, leadership development. Talk about that. Absolutely vital. You, you simply must not walk away from the fact that at some point you're going to need a portion of the individuals in your workforce to be able to step up and lead large-scale operations. And again, large-scale complex operations because if you're attempting to provide a good or service on more than a single regional basis, they need to understand cultural elements and uh, the aspect of selling in, in a multicultural environment. Selling an idea in a Latin America is different than selling it in Asia, different than selling it in North America. Uh, unfortunately, most firms don't really have a finite way that they actually go and look at who are our top 5 to 10%, and then laying out not only succession plans, but importantly, sponsors and coaches for those individuals that are challenging them for the development they're going to require. It really is that small a share, is it not? You said 5 to 10%? It is. If uh, I've seen many firms that will track up to 15 to 20% of their base, and while that uh, is probably appropriate for employees that might be brand new to the organization by the 3, 5, to 10-year mark, if you're tracking any more than 5%, I don't think you're really making uh, finite choices about those that really have the capability of leading you know, several thousand people. Of course, the search for leaders has always been a difficult, uh, difficult one in the business world, has it not? There's nothing new about that. No. It, it, in fact, there's a lot of both science to it and there's a lot of personal side social skill to it. And, and the leadership curve, the development curve, actually it, for each individual is different on different timelines. So you'll have some what I call late bloomers who rise to a challenge and something triggers that activity. In many ways, I think providing people the challenges earlier, like the cross-functional development piece and moving into different roles that I mentioned, actually helps you determine who are going to be those that have the ability to manage and deal with constant change, who can articulate the ideas and package solutions for executives to be able to make decisions on. So I, I think they go hand in hand. That's why I call them you know, five the five key points. Yeah. Often we hear about the distinction between a good manager and a good leader. Two different types of talents, I would think. Very, very different. In fact, uh, you can have a great day-to-day -day manager uh, who can manage the day-to-day -day execution but really can't step back and look for what is the root cause that's really perhaps disrupting 
the organization. Yeah. Let's move on to your third point, which I believe is process standardization. Why is that important? You know, it, it, in many ways, uh, process standardization gets a bad uh, tag. Uh, people look at it and say, oh, my goodness, if I'm standardized on processes, that means I'm actually uh, too stiff, I'm not agile. I'm going to tell you that it's actually directly the opposite because uh, the more standard you are on the critical systems and processes that you need to use uh, to be effective, the better you're going to be in terms of agility. And it goes hand-in-hand hand because you have the ability to then transition people across challenges faster because you don't have six ways that a specific piece of work is done, all different. Uh, it cuts your training and, and uh, your development time for your people because you're not having to show them six different ways and then have them try and personally interpret which way to go. It allows you to plug-and-play new best-of-breed solutions that you can lay over the top for how to execute a work. And importantly, it allows you to plug or unplug a piece of work in or outside your organization very quickly if you decide that you'll be more agile by handing it off to someone else. And unfortunately, you can't hand off work to another partner when it's not standard. You can, you'll suffer the consequences. Next is what you call retain and train re-engineering. What's that mean? Yeah, I, I love the HR studies that talk about the, the sheer cost that's involved to take an individual that you already have and train them to do an effective job, and then the, the doubling effect when you actually have to replace those individuals and do it all again and try and plug a hole in the dike. I call it retain and train because you, your, your most valuable asset are the individuals that you already have within the four walls of your firm. Uh, you've already spent time to give them some form of acclimation around your culture, the way you make decisions, how the business operates, uh, how to develop. But it's amazing to me today how many people are spending so little on training the individuals that are already inside the operation instead of preparing them for this big gap that they have and how to be able to manage bigger challenges, they're actually running to execute tasks but not investing in their development. So they actually are, I call them squirrels in a cage because they're running at rapid pace but they don't know that the door is open to the left because they've not been taught and given the skills to look for the options. In fact, so there are so many new techniques to help improve um, and help people do their work faster. Uh, online simulations are now available. Web-based techniques train people to identify where their gaps are in skills. They can track everything from keystrokes if it's uh, task-level executional work. Those are things that are small investments but pay out huge returns on identifying not only where you have a training gap but where you're going to end up finding your next failure for the business. One of your fellow panelists at Supply Chain Insights, Cindy Urbatus of the Institute for Supply Management, she said the average company spends about $650 per person per year on training. That's that's pretty sad. Well, I, and it is, uh, but it's also one of those unfortunate realities. Uh, most of the $650 is spent on traditional methods. And so the 
rate of return that you can get out of that versus a web-based technique. Like many firms that I go into today, Bob, are still training in much the same way they were in the 60s and 70s by having either classroom techniques. They take people offline for four, five, ten days at a time, only at critical points when they've either realized they're failing at something as opposed to insisting on online use of call it web-based techniques that are pulsing out repeated small-scale task-level completions for training efforts for people to complete in four, five, ten minutes that are giving them a sense for where are the gaps in the organization. They're online. They're web-based. They don't have to buy them. They can actually even uh, rent them out of the cloud today. Uh, so there's big interventions that are possible with small amounts of money, and I believe it could probably easily fit within the $650 that Cindy mentioned, but doubled the, the bang for the buck. So number five, you said challenge early. What do you mean by that? I, I'm a strong believer, Bob, and it, it comes just from my own personal background of helping build business in multiple regions of the world by being on the ground, uh, that there's a propensity not to challenge people early enough with uh, more responsibility. I'll give you the paradigm shift. If you go into a uh, Eastern European or um, uh, Middle East and Africa situation or an Asian situation, the average employee age all the way up through middle management will be very, very young. Now, contrast that to a developed market situation of North America, um, so the U.S., Canada, Western Europe, and Great Britain, France, Spain, etc. You're going to find in Germany very, very senior level employees all the way down to almost the entry level in the organization, but they have been in roles for multiple years. So there's a risk-reward strategy where individuals really aren't pushed to stretch. Uh, I believe if you stretch employees, you're actually going to get a big reward. You're going to occasionally get a failure, but if you're not really stretching, Bob, then you're probably not delivering breakthroughs. So in the developing world, you're seeing people get challenged early and often. They're brought in, they're quickly trained, they're taught the basics, and then they're handed a bigger scope and scale of responsibility. So I, I believe in the next few years ahead, especially, especially in the developed world, you're going to see the paradigm flipped upside down, where because of the talent shortage and because of the graying of the population and the gaps in middle management, that the developed developing world model will be more at play. You're going to get younger employees moved up all the way through the middle of the organization simply out of necessity. What about the universities? Uh, how good a job are they doing? Are there enough supply chain programs out there right now, and are they the right kind of programs? Well, I think you have to first um, kind of step back and, and uh, say that the industries have failed in providing a great uh, demand forecast to the universities for what talent was required and with what skills. It's almost like as a company, you walk into one of your suppliers and you say, well, I want a widget and I want some, but I'm not going to tell you how many and I'm not going to tell you what specification the widget needs to be meet on, from a tolerance standpoint. And to a great extent, that's exactly what industry has done to the academic world. And I think it's a, a shared responsibility. So 
the academic world on the flip side has also uh, done a, a less than adequate job at being able to take and understand the scope of the end-to-end business models and all that is encompassed in supply chain delivery today and really deliver curriculum that speaks to those full skill sets. Many have been repackaged and refashioned into supply chain degrees, but uh, realistically, they are a supply chain degree that is uh, a majority or 90% focused on a specialization in one piece of the supply chain. So there's a, a gap on both sides. It's something that we've been continuing to work as an industry consortium to try and address. We're getting much more creative solutions with joint degrees and universities coming together to to help bridge what they can't individually develop themselves. And we're also getting uh, more involvement from industries, from companies, stepping into the classrooms and being part of case studies and dynamic uh, partnering for doing co-ops and a much higher degree of internships to bring that real-world experience back into the student population. Several years ago, we saw the launch of the Supply Chain Talent Academic Initiative. I know that uh, Nick Little of Michigan State, one of your panelists at Supply Chain Insights, was involved with that as well as a number of other academics. I haven't heard much from them recently. Are they still around, still doing that kind of work? They actually are, and uh, I give them credit. They've done a great deal of work in not only helping this to work. Uh, they've taken an inside-out mentality of first addressing and saying, do people even understand what a supply chain career is? So they went back to the base, the ABC basics, and worked with the uh, U.S. Department of um, for Employment and, and really brought forward the first comprehensive salary survey that laid out what a career path in the supply chain field really encompassed. And instead of, I call them task or job-related specialties that the U.S., Uh, was tracking up to that point. They've also developed materials that they've deployed out into all of the uh, guidance counselor network at the college and the high school level to help those that are mentoring and counseling young students into an understanding of what that career path might make available to them. Third, they've done a great job of actually helping to cobble together for the first time an understanding of what you could do to retain and train existing employees. So that's where Cindy and her team at the ISM come into play. Uh, Nick has done a great job of reaching out across uh, many of the other top 10 to 15 academic institutions. And industries tried to participate as well by highlighting each year through the Gartner study as well as the Supply Chain Insight study on talent which universities are actually helping to bring the best content to bear to help train, you know, the emerging employees. Got a long way to go, but yes, it's uh, doing a good job of helping to bring light and helping to step into gaps as they're identified. Well, if it's true that they, as they say, that the uh, first step towards solving a problem is describing it and realizing that it exists, I guess we should be optimistic that uh, we're there. Uh, you've done a great job of outlining the problem for us, uh, Jake, and uh, giving us some uh, specific things we need to do in order to solve it. So thank you very much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Bob, I appreciate the opportunity because, unfortunately, unless we keep uh, spotlight on the gap, 
Um, there's quite a few businesses that are going to be running down going out of business sales. Okay, thank you. That was Jake Barr, CEO with Blue World Supply Chain Consulting, LLC. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch over a thousand videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time. <laughs>